1: Information, connect with a wealth advisor today at corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient.com.
2: Hey friends, Nadia Okamoto here. You're listening to another episode of Tigris the podcast. And this is actually my first time recording an episode here at my home in Brooklyn, New York City, uh, where I am standing right below. My new neon podcast sign that says Tigress. Shout out to Amazon Podcast for sending it over. I am obsessed with it. Um, If you followed along on TikTok or any social media platform of mine, I've been really, really excited about unboxing this and getting it up on the wall. Anyways, super excited to dig into today's episode, but also a little bit nervous because um, I'm going to be speaking a lot about politics, which Uh, in my experience on social media, can get really heated and feel controversial on the most basic topics. Um, And to be honest, uh, I'm a little ashamed to admit that I have avoided political conversations in some ways, um, specifically regarding the Trump administration and otherwise, um, because sometimes I just don't have the energy for that. I mean, at the same time, all of my work is inherently political in some way, right? I run a company about periods. I talk about gender equality. But I guess for me, I don't even think of that as politics. To me, that's just like, what is right? Like, we should be talking about reproductive rights and gender equality because that is the right thing to do. And it is ridiculous that we're still fighting for these things. I guess in my mind, I just don't label it as politics because, uh, yeah, it's just like my passion in the work that I do. I don't know if that makes sense. Anyways. Today, we're going to talk about specifically the January 6th insurrection of 2021. Um, And, you know, it is now January 6th, 2022, when I am sitting in my apartment in my cozy, comfy uh, sweater to record this podcast. And, you know, this is actually our second time recording this podcast episode. Uh, We had some technical difficulties the first time, and I am actually not mad about that at all because I think that it gave me the opportunity to really think about what I wanted to say in this podcast episode um, and really have some extra days to reflect on the meaning of today. Uh, So for those of you who are not familiar, uh, exactly one year ago was the insurrection when rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol and raided Nancy Pelosi's office and took pictures, um, brutally attacked police officers who were working to protect um, the U.S. Capitol. And I think over the last year, we have seen the FBI investigations happen and people who participated in those riots slowly be held accountable. And I put the word accountable in air quotes because I think it's really disappointing to see some of the sentences that are coming out. Uh, and, and from the you know very surface level information that I have, to be honest, I have not done a deep dive into it because it just makes me so angry. Um, But I think that in many ways, a lot of the riders who are involved have been sort of like let off the hook in some ways. Um, I was recently listening to a podcast about how uh, a lot of the riders who, you know, played a very, very um, intense leadership role in, you know, pushing forward, taking taking pictures while they were in the U.S. Capitol are having to do like community service on weekends. Right. Like things like that, where it really makes you question whether or not those would be the same sentences if they were people of color or black men who had stormed the Capitol. Um, and yeah, it's just really, it's, it's just kind of a disgusting and shocking day. Um, but I think to take it back, what I wanted to do with this podcast episode is talk a little bit about how the January 6th, 2021 insurrection played a role in my life of, I think, solidifying the lack of faith that I have in our governmental system and the lack of faith that I have in my own ability to make changes. And that's a really depressing thing to say out loud. But I think the more and more I think about it, the more I read the news and just, I think, learn from my own past experiences of being politically involved, the more that feels right to me. Um, And I hope that will change. I'm not saying that as like, you know, this is how I'm always going to be. And I never want to be apathetic. I don't consider myself apathetic. But I do consider myself someone who used to have blind optimism about how I or, you know, me and some peers could make a significant, significant difference around fighting for justice and equality or changing the system by getting into politics and party, partisan politics specifically. Um, and I think that that blind optimism has really toned down over the last few years since I've run for office, since I've witnessed things like the 2016 election, the 2020 election, how it's been handled, um, you know how we've dealt with healthcare, reproductive rights, um, race in this country, and after witnessing events like what happened one year ago on January 6th. Um, I was recently listening to one of the episodes of The Daily, The New York Times, The Daily, which, as y'all know, uh, probably my, that is like my favorite podcast. I listen to it every single day. Um, and I was listening to uh, an episode where they were reenacting a uh, an interview with one of the rioters. And he was explaining how he was actually a lifetime Democrat. And he went just because he was skeptical of politics and he just wanted to learn more. And he ended up participating Um, Pretty heavily. And he keeps saying over and over again, I look at my actions as disgusting. I regret it. It was just herd mentality. We were all, you know, going forward about it. And I don't think people really planned for it. It was herd mentality. And that quote unquote herd mentality, I think, really stuck with me because I think for me, you know, I grew up in these liberal bubbles of New York City and Portland, Oregon. And I've really recognize how a lot of my political views are shaped by the people around me. Right. And I'm not saying that those are wrong at all, but I think that for me, just as the rioters felt the herd mentality around going forward into the U S Capitol, you know, at a very different level, in a different way, I recognize that a lot of my political views are shaped by the herd mentality of being surrounded by often very homogenous communities of progressive thinkers, right? And I'm not saying that I'm rebelling against that progressive thought at all. If anything, uh, I'm leaning more into it. But I say that because I think it's really important that as young people, as young citizens of this country, we recognize how our political views are so shaped by our families, our communities, and we actively do the work to have conversations like this to be self-critical and self-reflective and say, why do I think the things that I do and what is shaping my views and how do I think I can be civically engaged, right? And I think this last question of mine around civic engagement and specifically in like my own personal wish to be civically engaged, that's really changed as as I've really questioned where my political views come from and how they're shaped and how I can be involved. Um, Where I sit right now is, as I said, Feeling a lot less hopeful and interested in being involved in party politics, campaign politics um, at the moment. And that feels like a very extreme difference to where I was five, six years ago. When I was in high school, I wasn't obsessed with, you know, being an elected official. There's no part of me that wanted to like run for president or run for office but I was very interested in politics, right? With period and growing this nonprofit starting when I was 16, it became very clear to me very quickly that legislation was a key way that you fought for systemic change, right? And, you know, even in old speeches, I would say, you know, what's the best way to change the system uh, or affect the system is to work within it and to rewrite the system, right? To literally change laws. And I still very much believe that, right? I think that Government and fighting for legislation that you believe in and for you know, enacting different policies that protect uh, you know, diverse communities of American citizens, in many, many ways, legislation is a key way to do that and a marker of success. And that is something that I had pursued for years through my nonprofit work, right? Working to push forward legislation around taking down the tampon tax, fighting for more freely accessible period products in schools, shelters, and prisons, And I still very much hope to be a part of that legislative advocacy. I think that when I started hitting early college years is when I started really thinking about, okay, how can I be involved in politics at the campaign level, right? Again, not really thinking about whether or not I wanted to run for office, but I remember the summer before college, you know, 2016 uh, presidential election year, wanting to do as much as I could to work on Hillary Hillary Clinton's campaign. Um, I was an OG Bernie Sanders supporter uh, originally. Um, And then when she became the uh, primary candidate for the Democratic Party, I remember being at the Democratic National Convention in 2016 uh, in Philadelphia, like watching her speak, watching Obama and Biden speak, and just feeling so inspired and feeling a lot of like, I want to be on that stage, right? And, you know, in the moment, I remember thinking, I want to be on that stage because that is what change looks like. Right. But I also, you know, even upon reflecting on it, I'm like, okay, but what is that feeling actually? Right. Did I want to be on that stage because I felt like that platform is the way I get change done? Or did I want to be on that stage because it was a glitzy, glamorous stage where, you know, balloons were falling from the sky and Bill Clinton is happily kicking around the balloons, um, which are really adorable pictures, by the way, if you want to go see them. um, DNC 2016. But, you know, I really look back at, you know, what are the motives of mine for wanting to get into campaign politics, right? And I think that those were questions that I really had to grapple with when I was a freshman in college and decided to run for office. Um, And, you know, this is something that I have received a lot of criticism for publicly, privately in my own life, internally in my own mind. Um, And I think that, you know, all my career moves have, you know, for good and bad been pretty impulsive, right? When you're 16 and you have no work experience and no family money to fall back on, you don't think I'm going to start a nonprofit or I'm going to start a company and you think about it for years before you get started. Or at least not in my case. In my case, it was I'm passionate about something. I need to act because this is actively urgent and we are going to start this thing, right? And I think that especially in, you know, in starting a, a venture in school, doing full-time school, doing other jobs, there isn't a lot of time to, you know, put a year into thinking about a strategic plan. It's more like I am going to act and I'm going to use the tools in front of me to act, right? My whole nonprofit, even starting this company that I'm doing right now, right? And living in the TikTok era, it's I see a trend, I make the video, I post it in the span of three minutes, Right. And I think a lot of my trusting my instincts and my intuition in my career is why I am where I am, right? Uh, Trusting the words that I put in an email, trusting the hiring decisions that I make, trusting my instinct to want to be CEO when I don't really have qualifications on paper to be a CEO, you know? So I think that I say that because in many ways, my intuition, that impulsivity per se, is something that has really worked in my favor and something that I'm really proud of right I think that when I look at other entrepreneurs and I feel really inspired by how people I've let how people have led I'm really inspired by people who have this conviction to trust their instinct and act upon it right and a lot of it is you fail a lot right and I think a lot of the entrepreneurial and even like being involved in politics that whole journey for me has been being okay with failing a lot and not actually looking at it as failing, but as just like, oh, here's an opportunity to learn. Right. And I know that is cheesy to say, but that's what I mean. Um, but anyways, I go off on a tangent, uh, but spring of my freshman year of college, I, you know, it was a few months after Trump was elected, um, into president of the United States. And I remember for months just feeling so angry and so, activated. And I think that while I was sad and depressed about the results, they weren't surprising to me, right? I don't think, or I would hope most people of color in the U.S. have grown up experiencing racism in some ways. So the idea that we could elect a racist, sexist person um, with no political experience into president of the United States, while that is shocking in many ways and sad, it's not shocking enough that I felt like, yeah, this would never happen. This was a fluke, right? And, and if anything, it was, okay, here's further validation of the parts of America and current political sentiments that I'm not surrounded by, but I know are out there and I know are probably more out there than I could even imagine, right? And I think that, you know, I don't know if I'm making sense, but- uh an SNL skit about, you know, white friends not being surprised by the election results and black friends being really, or or white friends being um, very surprised and black friends not being surprised because, you know, these discriminatory sentiments are something that they're a lot more familiar with. That SNL skit is something that I think sums it up much better than I possibly can right now. But, you know, I think at the time, It was a few months after Trump was elected, uh, and I found myself very involved in any way that I could, specifically in local politics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And a lot of that was because I started looking around me, like November, December 2016, at different organizations that were reaching out to young progressives and seeing how I could get involved. And the rhetoric that I kept hearing over and over again was, we need young people to run. We need young women of color to run. We need young, progressive women of color to run. And I was getting targeted in many ways on social media and emails by organizations, one on one calls, conference calls, coaching calls with people from these nonprofit organizations who were reaching out and saying, we need young, progressive women of color to run and you should run. Right. And those organizations do incredible work. Right. There is She Should Run, um, Ignite. These are incredible organizations But I think for me, it was a very new influx of attention and encouragement in my life than I think I had expected at that time. And a lot of the rhetoric as well, right, with Trump then being elected into office was this is when state and local politics become more and more important. We need people to be involved at the local level. And um, that is where we protect civil rights. You know, this is also the wave of um, conversations around sanctuary cities and Um, you know, that was a huge conversation at the time as
0: well. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save money on your insurance?
2: and see all the ways you could save with great rates and discounts. It's easy. Simply go to geico.com to get a rate quote or contact your local agent and get started seeing how much you could save. This show is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition. I think most of us agree that in a functioning democracy, the winner should be determined by the voters. Well, that almost didn't happen in 2020. Now, extremists are working to intimidate and replace nonpartisan election workers with quote-unquote yes-men who might reject election results. The only thing that will stop them is us. We've partnered with the grassroots pro-democracy organization, Represent Us, to give you the tools you need to protect free and fair elections. Learn more and get involved. Visit represent.us slash pod to learn more. So for the few months between like November 2016, March of 2017, I was in these conversations with like Cambridge City Council, saying I want to be involved, and you know why aren't students involved, and why is there this tense town and gown relationship? And I started building a relationship with some of the city councilors, and it really started to have this effect on me, where I got more and more passionate about it, specifically around issues like housing affordability and involving like university communities in conversations about the impact on local communities, which I felt like was really missing. And I still think is missing from many college towns is that Tense town and gown relationship. But I started having more of those conversations and, you know, with the encouragement from the organizations I mentioned, but also then encouragement from other city councilors, some city councilors who were running again for reelection and some who had decided to not run again. I was starting to get more encouragement from them to consider running for office, right? And for me, and this is where I go back to what I originally talked about with the blind optimism and confidence and potentially ego, hearing all that encouragement. And I think also being really frustrated by some of the apathy I saw on campus with students around me, right? And I'm not saying everybody was apathetic. There were so many people who were so passionate about you know, ensuring that post-2016 election, there was a lot of work being done. But I think that there were also students who like the election came and went and then we weren't talking about it anymore. And on social media, people were posting a lot about it, you know, November 2016, and then it wasn't really there anymore and feeds went back to normal. So I think that all of that kind of culminated in me following my fucking intuition to say, I guess I'm going to run for city council. And after a lot of conversations with current city council members, I remember really comprehending I'm probably not going to win. I'm probably not going to be elected. But what is the meaning of me running? What is the meaning of other young people seeing that I can run, right? And if I, as a 19-year-old at the time, can run for office, then if a 35-year-old, you know, incredible progressive woman of color candidate says, if she can do it, then I can, then maybe that really means something, right? And this is also the narrative that I was told a lot by these organizations who are saying, you know, it's not just about winning. It's about, Making your mark, you're gonna get pushed back, but it's about the platform that you run on, right? And so I got to a point where I was like, "This is what I'm gonna do." Googling, "What does it take to run for office?" Learning I have to be a resident and 18 years old, and I was 19 at the time. And I said, "Okay, you know, I can do this. I fit the qualifications." And I started to talk to some friends about it, and I think the friends around me, while some of them were like, "Ooh, that sounds like a lot of work, and you're gonna get a lot of hate for it, especially on a competitive campus like Harvard." There were a lot of friends who were like, yeah, go for it. You should do it. Like, I will work on your campaign. Like, let's get, let's, let's do this thing, you know? And we ran for office. We ran, um, in a busy field of over like 25 candidates and for nine spots up for reelection, ranked choice voting. And it was one of the most exhausting, terrifying, but meaningful experiences of my life. It taught me a lot, um, It was exhausting, like I slept two hours a night, was working multiple jobs, still running the organization, was going to school full-time, trying to do that, um, canvassing hours a day, Um, I was exhausted. It totally ruined my social life at Harvard. Uh, I had to get used to peers tweeting about me, making fun of me, um, sending me loathing emails about why they thought it was ridiculous that I was running. Um, Harvard actually ended up moving my dorm Um, houses from the quad to a higher security building because of the amount of death threats that I was getting. Like there were significant impacts on my personal health. That is what I'll say. And at the same time, I think that I felt the pressure to really hold it all together because I did end up bringing on people who were friends at the time to work on the campaign. And, you know, I remember talking to them being like, I don't have resources, but, uh, you know, we'll try to our best to fundraise and, um, you know, whatever we have left, like you can have, right. Like paying staff, but I don't have money to begin with. I have not raised any money We're we have eight months or like six or eight months to, um, to election day in November, 2017. And we just have to go for it. And again, I think it was this like blind, I don't want to say blind, maybe blind is not the right word because that makes it sound like we're, we were uninformed. It was like, hopeful optimism, like hopeful, naive optimism that that's all we had to take into consideration, that we were passionate, that there would have a positive effect beyond um, just the fact that we would run in our local community and it wasn't all about winning. But if I had to go back, with knowing everything that I do now, if I had to go back and make the decision if I was gonna run again, I don't think I would. And there are a lot of reasons for that, not only because, you know, I depleted my own personal energy, but also because I lost a lot of great friends from it. I think it was really stressful on uh, the people who worked on my campaign team. It was a stressful environment working on political campaign on any political campaign. Right. Being on the campaign trail is exhausting. Nobody's sleeping. People aren't eating. You're not making a lot of money. And for me, like I didn't I had twelve thousand dollars in my bank account before I ran and by the end I had $500 and that money was spent on food and lodging for like the people who were working on my campaign. We were all living together in this like small, like two bedroom apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it's really sad to me how, how hard the experience was on those relationships. And, you know, I think in many ways, I don't think that that is worth what we actually got out of it. Right. And I think that over the last few years, I've had a lot more time to reflect on the impact of the campaign and also like what long-term change we actually made. You know, I'm proud of the results that we garnered based off of all of the work that we put in. I'm really proud of the fact that we mobilized, you know, close to a hundred volunteers at a given point along the campaign trail. I'm proud of the fact that we got, you know, tens of thousands of people on the internet across the world to see a young woman of color running. I'm proud that we got, you know, we got a lot of hate messages from like KKK members who were really mad that a bunch of young Asian people were here running political campaign. And um, it, it makes me excited to think about how much discomfort and like productive conversations were had around, you know, getting young people in politics. I do believe young people should be able to run. I believe that people should be able to vote when they're 16. Um, So I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to mobilize in that way. And I'm proud of the fact that, you know, I ran a campaign based off of, you know, being a passionate young person who just wanted to make a difference. I also think that, you know, while we didn't win, it was a really significant wave that we made around getting students involved. We were able to, like, increase the number of students who had turned out on, like, Harvard, MIT, Leslie campuses. Increase that by much more than we had expected, um, but yeah. And, and I, the last thing I'll say is m- the biggest thing that I take away from it is that two years after I ran, which is when uh, which was when the next election was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, there was another MIT student who ran named Burhan Azim. He lost his first time, but two years later he ran again uh, last year in twenty twenty one, and he was elected. And he had reached out before he decided to run, and when he was running and the first time and the second time, and then actually messaged me after he was elected. And I messaged him, congratulations. And he had reached out and thanked me for running and kind of paving the way. And I am proud of that, right? I think that the blunt of what we got and how kind of ridiculous and crazy it was, but also like how angry a lot of residents were that a student was being involved. Like, I am proud of the fact that maybe we did pave the way. And I think the other exciting thing is with ranked choice voting, even if I was not elected a big part of the last few months on the campaign trail, were encouraging people to vote for the other progressive candidates that we really aligned with. Right. I share all of that um, because I think that for me, my attitude when I ran for office was very much like, okay, I'm stepping into this political power that I have as a young person. I'm being vocal about the issues that I care about. And I fully believe that I can make a difference. I have a lot of respect for people who are elected officials but I also think that I became more cynical about the process as I ran, realizing how much of it depended on money, right? Like, you can, in many ways, buy an election because the way, you know, different polling places or even um, like local media, national media, how they measure whether or not someone has a realistic chance of being elected is based off of how much money they have in their bank account. And I think that. For me, seeing the dynamic of political campaigns being so much about money and then who can spend most strategically on Facebook to target people with political ads, like so much of that, I think for me, disillusioned, like that's just not what I want to do. I hate fundraising. I hate fundraising. I feel like disingenuous with fundraising because I'm always so tired and I don't want to say the speech over and over again. And I tell that even to the investors that I work with in my company, right? Like I hate fundraising, you know? And I'm just not cut out for it. And I think that for me at the same time, I ended up just not being passionate about the issues in comparison to how passionate I am about periods, right? Like I got into the election because I was passionate about housing affordability. What did I end up talking about more though? like the schedules of the trash trucks, the, you know, the trucks coming around and bicycle lanes and zoning codes and whether or not people who are international, you know, foreign investors should be able to hold empty apartments, right? These really important questions that I think we need people to care deeply about, but I am not deeply passionate about. I stay up at night thinking about periods like that, like that. Like I stay up at night thinking about gender equality periods, reproductive rights. I don't stay up at night thinking about zoning codes and ha- like, uh, you know, whether or not construction can go on at a certain time. Um, and so I think that for me, it was like all of those experiences that very much by the end of the campaign, I was like, I'm never running for office again. And I don't want to be involved in campaign life. I really hope that I can continue using my platform to influence politics, because I think that politics are very important. But I think that, you know, over the last four years, every day reading the news, it's hard to keep up the belief that the system is made to and is succeeding in protecting us, in protecting people of color and protecting marginalized communities and protecting women in protecting yeah people with uteruses. And I think that january 6th of last year you know just a few weeks before um trump's uh term was ending and before the inauguration of president joe biden i think for the insurrection to happen was like felt like a cherry or like icing on the cake right of like what the fuck country are we living in right what is happening and how could this be allowed and How can we have a system that elects a president like Donald Trump, impeaches him twice, by the way, you know, the the second impeachment was in January, 2021, but he's not removed from office. He's acquitted on all charges of that. And then we see these kind of, you know, barely just, you know, barely enough sentences for the writers who are involved. Right. So I think that for me, and many of my peers watching what happened last year was just like, are you kidding me? Like, it just felt again, that icing on the cake of how am I supposed to sit back and relax and think the government's got us, you know? And I never felt bad and I think that, you know, I also own up to a lot of the privileges that I do have that in many ways, like this is a recent realization for me. Like I did grow up with 10, 12 years, you know, in early childhood thinking, You know the people who change the world are politicians they are the ones who undoubtedly have the power to change the world and i think in many ways that's what we're taught in school i also think that that is what um i felt like i was really surrounded by from a narrative perspective you know over the last few years being in like a political advocacy space um again to me i i'm not sharing any of this to say i think we should lose hope i'm not sharing this because i'm saying nobody should participate i'm saying no we need people to run i'm just not going to be the one to do it right and i'm saying um the system needs to change but you know do i have faith that we're going to completely reinvent it do i have faith that it's going to be all peaceful things from here on out no do i feel right now that the system is something that i'm working to support because they are doing their job of protecting us no i'm thinking that we're actively fighting against it and I don't know, it's just hard to have that, um, the same optimism and hope that I did five years ago. And I hope that you know my generation of like older Gen Z or Zillennials, whatever you want to call it, I hope that we stay engaged in the way that we are right now. I think millennials from a political perspective have had a really bad rap of being apathetic and inactive. And I don't want to be that, and I don't intend to be that. I absolutely want to show out and vote and turn out and everything but I do think that I'm doing so with much more caution and less optimism than I did five years ago. And yeah, I just kind of wanted to share that because I think that my head has been really swarming with a lot of uh, conflicting thoughts about this. Again, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. I'm currently doing this podcast in my house where I don't have my sound engineer or my producers here on the phone where they can kind of be like, okay, you know, do this talk more about this Um, I'm just speaking from the heart really unscripted and yeah that's how I'm feeling about it and I really want to continue this conversation online if you DM me on Instagram you know that I always try to respond Um, but I want to hear what you think and I want to see here if you have reactions to you know the anniversary of January 6th and how you're feeling about it now and um, how you keep up hope in the system as well and I will see you next week on Wednesday on another episode of Tigris. Bye y'all.
0: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.